A nature trail is more than a path. It's a place for weekend laughter, moments of self-reflection, or a much-needed breath of fresh air. With All Trails Plus, you can plan your next hike, ride, or run with confidence so you can relax and enjoy the journey. All Trails Plus gives you all the info you need in one place so you can make the most of your time outdoors. Quickly discover new trails near you and spend less time driving and more time on the trail with the Distance Away feature. And get immersive trail previews and 3D views so you know what to expect before your first step. Want to go where cell service can't? Download the map to keep your route in hand and never get lost, even offline. You can even get alerts if you take an unexpected turn. There's a trail out there for everyone. Get outside today with three free months of All Trails Plus. Just use code PODCAST23 at alltrails.com slash podcast. That's three months free at alltrails.com slash podcast with code PODCAST23. On this show today, we'll discuss the lies we are told and too often believe. And also, Carl Lentz is in the news again. We have some surveys on American society to discuss, um, and we actually are going to discuss our Bible topic, which is chapter four of Knowing Sin by Mark Jones. All right, let's get into it. Welcome in. This is Religionless Christianity. I'm your host, Spencer. This is my beautiful and chipper wife, Nikki. Hello. (laughs) And we're so grateful that you're joining us today. If you're new here, um, as we always say, don't let the name fool you. Uh, We ourselves, uh, we consider ourselves religious, um, quite Christian folks here, but the world that we live in, and especially the country we live in, is not. It is becoming increasingly secular, very religionless, you could say, and that in part is where uh, the name comes from. And we're going to do, try to do what we try to do every week here, and that's help Christians deal with the news, navigate the news, and uh, keep our eyes fixed on Christ through all of it. Uh, We hope we can do that today as well. Um, We do have a few good stories to get to, I think, that are important for Christians. But before we get into any of it, dear, um, is there anything you would like to say? Any prayer requests that you may have? Um, I guess just pray for safe travels as we drive to Clovis to visit family um, for Easter. So I hope that'll be a nice visit. We'll have a little more time to catch up. We were last time we. Stopped there. We were on our way here from Florida, so we were really exhausted and didn't have a lot of time to to visit. So just pray it would be a nice, restful, and joyful. <laughs> yeah. And also, if you have any idea where Clovis is without Googling it, leave it in the comments. Let us know what state. You, I mean, if you listen to the show, you probably know. Otherwise, why would you know where Clovis is? <laughs> Uh, let us know in the comments. But yeah, pray that we would have a good Easter. Um, we're going to go see some family and some old friends, which is always nice. And um, yeah, that's really about it. Otherwise, life is good. Kids are doing well. Slowly making friends, getting back into ballet and hmm. martial arts. So that's good, I guess. Well, uh, Work's yeah. coming along fine. Still not super motivated to be there, but I'm there with a smile on my face every day. Yeah. So it's good. Yeah. So just pray for 
yeah, the kids to have friends. And me too. Um, I'm a very social person and I've been kind of lonely out here. Um, Spencer working more and yeah, I could use prayer just, and I've prayed for friends before. Like that is always something I pray for whenever we move because it really, I really start to get, I don't know, girls need their friends. I don't think he's with people at work. He's fine. And I don't want to be with them. So, um, <laughs> but no, and this also is a part, and again, this could be, a, this will be my prayer request. Pray that we find a church that we like. We have some that we've gone to that we enjoy, but you know, we want to do our due diligence and find the right place. And that's obviously where we get a lot of our friendships from is from church. We haven't found that church just yet. We're new here. So pray that we find a good church. And I think if we find a good church, a lot of the issues will be cleaned up, I think. So pray for us there. But otherwise, do you have anything else, honey? Uh, just keep praying for my uncle, Fred. Um, he uh, was released from the hospital, but I think he was going back to the ER because he couldn't um, really stand up. So I think he has some serious issues, maybe with his heart. Please pray for his salvation. Um, yeah, so thank you if you've been praying for him. Keep praying for him. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right, before we get to the news, though, plugs. Let's get them out of the way here. You guys know... Big fans of Cardinal Contingency Solutions. We've talked to you guys in the past about missionaries that are in prison, city collapses, um, <laughs> violence rising in the area. All these sorts of things are not only possible, but they routinely happen <laughs> to people that are trying to be out there just sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and they get wrapped up in something unexpected. Well, with Cardinal you don't have to be unprepared, even though it's not expected. You can go in there well-prepared, um, know how to adjust to these situations, what tools are available to you, and how to just generally handle yourselves in these uh, otherwise chaotic environments. Um, you don't have to just figure it out on the fly. And, you know, I, I think I told you guys before, we went and listened to a, a girl who was going on a mission trip, and she mentioned, uh, afterwards I had asked her, you know, do you have anything in, prepared? And she mentioned that, like, well, I'm going to reach out to my brother. I have his cell phone or whatever. And if things go sideways, I'm going to call my brother. And you're like, awesome. Does your brother know what he's doing? Like, of course not. <laughs> right. So um, it's good to get a hold of somebody, but it's even better if you get a hold of the right person. And Cardinal can help prepare you with that. So just reach out to him, email, phone call, see if they have something for your church, your missionary group, or if you're law enforcement first responder. Um, they work with those folks all the time as well. So I think you'll be blessed. And then also you guys know that we are proud members of the Christian podcast community. And uh, you can go there, 50, almost 60 different podcasts, all from Christians talking about different subjects, whether it's, uh, you know, movie reviews or... Um, just more strictly theology, biblical topics, whatever happens to be. You can find it all in the Christian podcast community, and I think you'll be blessed by all of them. Go ahead and subscribe, leave them a nice comment. I think they'd be happy with that. So, alrighty then, the time has come. Prepare yourself, gird up your loins, steal up your soul. We're getting ready to talk about the news. You guys know what it is the valley of the shadow of death. It's awful. Um, generally, occasionally we get respite, 
not so much this week. So you guys know um, Donald Trump, I'm sure you're aware, was indicted this week. And, you know, we'll see how it goes or whatever. He's indicted, went and heard the charges, I guess. And now the next hearing is in December. Why would you wait eight months for a second hearing? Chaos, I can only assume, right? Um, But this leads me to a bigger point that I'm really going to, I don't really monologue very often on this show, but this was more of a monologue, I guess, in a sense, because what's disheartening about this and I think really is indicative of all of the society that we live in, right, is who are you going to believe? In this whole, just take the Trump issue as a single issue. Who are you going to believe? We know we can't believe Trump. He's proven to be a liar. Doesn't mean you can't like the guy, but his words, he's proven oftentimes he can stretch the truth, to say it nicely. Um, And he's largely participated in this charade. You know, he didn't have to go to New York. He didn't have to participate in this, but he did. Why? Probably because he thinks it's good for his reelection, right? He gets to go be the martyr. Um, We can't really believe our court system, you know, either side. If you're left or you're right, they've become largely politically politically motivated uh, so often, and therefore they become untrustworthy. Again, he's in New York, right? 12% of the people voted for Donald Trump in New York. It's a completely partisan city, um, justice system, so it's untrustworthy. And we certainly can't trust our politicians, we know that. You know, there's probably never been a greater collection of uh, liars and hypocrites gathered in one spot in the history of the world than what we have in Washington, D.C. today. So you add Donald Trump and you just tack that on to, again, what happened last week that we talked about, the transgender shooter in Nashville. You know, Audrey Hale, this girl who pretends to be a guy, right, goes and shoots up a Christian school, killing children, among others there, six total, And what did we hear from the media and the political class in this country? Oh, trans people are being targeted and they're in danger. Now we need trans days of awareness is, you know, put out days after a trans person kills Christians. And then President Biden comes out and says, probably one of the most disturbing, but probably sadly most spot on (laughs) statements that a leader could say and actually believe. Um, He says that transgender, uh, what does he say? Transgender Americans shape the nation's soul. (laughs) And probably 2023 America, spot on, right? Those who reject the truth shape our nation's soul. I'm not sure I could have said it better myself. And then you throw on to that the myriad of lies that we're already told on a daily basis, right? We've been told for decades now, you know, abortion somehow is women's health care and it saves lives. That's a lie we get fed on a daily basis. You know, here's one we get told that we're, you know, being a nation of consumers and being mired in debt from the time you become an adult to the day you get laid in a grave. That's the American dream. Isn't that wonderful? Don't you feel like you're living a dream being crushed by debt that you can never get out of? Might be a nightmare. 
never really felt like, like a dream. You can be whatever you want to be, but debt comes with it. And yeah. we're here to help you along the way. It's just going to cost you six figures in debt yeah. with a astronomical interest rate. Great. So, and, you know, and again, you could tack a million different issues that we get fed on a daily basis, but they know that what they're telling us is lies. That's the frustrating thing. They know that what they're saying are lies on all of these issues. And they know that you know what they're saying is a lie. But they also <laughs> know that depending on what team you've decided to cape up for, what team you cheerlead for, you're just going to accept the lie. And not only accept it, you'll perpetuate the lie. And then you'll fight and defend the lie. Think about that. On all these issues, people will not only accept the lie, we know it's a lie. Um, I mean, how many people do you hear go out there and, oh, babies, I mean, it's just a clump of cells. Nobody believes that. Yet they'll accept it, they'll perpetuate it. Mm -hmm. And now we see they'll fight and defend that known lie. And I think, you know, when you think about this, at least the way it strikes me is the lie is the point. The arguments on them or in and of themselves is not the point. It's the lie. The lie is the point, you know, because when Satan and his children can mm -hmm. get you to a place where you'll listen to, accept, fight and defend something that you know is a lie, you're entirely his. Yeah, you're completely the, given over. The father of lies. It's really good to look at it from, uh, from that point of view, because that's what Satan's all about. And somehow, yeah, people get tricked into believing lies or just things get twisted. And Well, I think at some level we get tricked, but I think yeah. there's also a large part that they want to believe the lie, you know, because it's easier to believe the lie. A I mean, lot again, of it is based on victimhood, everything, everything. is Right. And that's just a larger symptom of probably self-idolatry. Yeah. You're a victim, right? Or it's just convenience fact. We've talked yeah. about, you know, Planned Parenthood, 92% of their abortions are elective. That's not life of the mother, rape and incest. That's just, this is super inconvenient for me. Yeah. So I'll just believe the lie that it's just a clump of cells. Let me get back to work, get back to my sexually promiscuous lifestyle. Because it's just a clump of cells, right? I don't need to think too long about that. It makes life easier for me if I don't think about it. Um, and like Nikki said, I mean, Satan's the father of lies. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, and maybe, you know, people think that there's some grandiose plan. Um, that the satanic left has is, and may, you know, communism, Marxism might be some sort of goal that they have, but with Satan, that's not a goal of Satan's communism is not the goal. Chaos, destruction, disorder yeah, I agree with is you. the goal. Yeah. Like, like our enemy isn't communism. It's, it's Satan. Yeah. It's just us being corrupt. Just looking back on all of history, um, just in the Bible. It's just the goal is corrupting, turning hearts away from God. Yeah, I mean, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He doesn't come to set up a neatly organized and functional governing or government and economic system. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. not his goal. He doesn't care. Chaos and destruction is the goal. Yeah. And we're seeing chaos and destruction And that's his kingdom. Everywhere. His kingdom isn't some political kingdom. No. It's just God is the God evil. of order. In chaos. <laughs> if you want order, if you want structure, if you want happiness and productivity, that's God. That's Christ. 
When you go away from that, you see where we turn or what it turns into. It's chaos on every front because Satan is chaotic and that's what he wants is chaos. And, um, you know, thinking on this topic as I was writing it and I heard what I think is the perfect encapsulation of this this week. You know, racism is another one of those lies that we choose to accept, perpetuate, fight and defend. The stuff we know is a lie. And this one came from, you may have heard of, uh, heard it, came from South Carolina women's basketball coach, Dawn Staley. And she said a couple of, she had a couple of post-game press conferences where she leaned into this racism thing, which she's good at. She's done before. Um, so we're going to listen to this first one. I think it's a little bit long, but there's a lot in there that I think is worth listening to. Um, other coaches, your colleagues have sitting in that spot and talked about you all being bullies. What's the truth about your team? The truth about our team, okay? It's a good question, okay? Um, we're not bar fighters. We're not thugs. We're not monkeys. We're not street fighters. Um, this team exemplifies how you need to approach basketball on the court and off the court. And I do think that I do think that that's sometimes brought into the game and it and it and it hurts okay um and I do think that some of uh I'm gonna say it because I said I was gonna say it whether we lost or whether we won some of the people in the media when you're gathering in public you're saying things about our team and you're being heard and it's being brought back to me, okay? And these are the people that write nationally for our, for our sport. So you can, you can not like our team, okay? You can not like me, um, but when you say things that you probably should be saying um, in your home on the phone or texting out in public and you're being heard and you are a national writer for our sport, it just confirms, just confirms what, what we already know. So watch what you say when you're in public and you're talking about my team in particular. No, Don Staley, we don't know. What are you alluding to? Oh, racism, right? Of course we know, right? This is, <laughs> this is a lie. This is what we're talking about to believe that there was a group of national sports writers sitting around in public spaces at the final four in 2023, loudly discussing that South Carolina's all black women's basketball team were monkeys is an absolutely absurd thing to believe. There's no way you can honestly believe that. And not to mention that this lie is told by Don Staley. Because Don Staley is, in fact, the one that publicly smeared the entire BYU volleyball program as racist during the Duke Rachel Richardson race hoax. If you remember that, she pulled her team out of a, uh, a home and home, I think, series with the BYU basketball team because, in her mind, the entire BYU school. An environment is racist and unsafe 
for South Carolina's all-black basketball team. So she did that. So maybe I'm wrong, right? I looked up who these national journalists were that were so bold and brazen and racist to call her team monkeys in public. I didn't find any, and she didn't give us names, unfortunately, though she's certain and she promises you that they exist. But this is obviously a lie. But again, as we're about to show in this next clip, people will accept it, they'll perpetuate it, and they're going to fight and they're going to defend this bold face and obvious what's lie. The, what's the goal in her saying this? Whether well, it's true or not. like Because as she goes on to say in here, um, it's an excuse for them being beaten. They, I think, were the favorite, most likely to win the national title. And they lost in the final four to a team they probably shouldn't have lost to. So rather than owning up to it, like a good coach would have said, you know what, the team that we played, they were the better team that day. They came out and they beat us. Hats off to the team. You know, we're going to come back next year. We're going to bust our butts. That takes responsibility. That says that you failed to do your job. But when you play the victim, it's, no, no, this was outside of my control. All these racists that were oppressing us and getting in our players' heads, they're the ones that beat us. It's not me that lost. Don Staley's still the best coach, and South Carolina's still the best team, even though we lost. So but because... it's that oppression and that racism that got us. Okay. It keeps her employed. And it's also gotten her raises, right? Because when she did the whole BYU hoax and you know feigned racism then when there was no evidence of it, it's a power play, right? Oppression and victimhood has become a power play yeah. and a moneymaker in 2023. And Dawn Staley is one of the best at leaning into it because the media class in this country, they lap it up. And as we're going to see in this next clip, they toss her these softballs so she can lean into this racist narrative. I mean, a time where everybody has their cell phone out, taken videos, like someone would have got that recorded. Oh, certainly. It was out in the open like that for people to hear. And she did the same thing with the the BYU thing, right? Yeah, they said, oh, nothing. we heard somebody yelling, you know, the N-word yeah. from the crowd. And then all the news organizations, you know, everyone did these investigations. Like, we couldn't find anything. But right. Dawn Staley's like, I watched the video and I heard it. You're like, okay, you're the only one in the world who heard it. All righty then, right? So again, you know, check the source mm -hmm. here on where this racist narrative coming. But this next clip, this is what I'm talking about, where they just accept it and perpetuate it. And we're going to see that right here in this clip. Don, Aaliyah talked about there's a narrative with this team, this particular one, about their physicality. Yeah. It, do you think it worked against you guys tonight? And if so, how annoying is that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do think, I do think, I do think with all the talk of, of how we play, and the physical nature in, in, in which we play, and the, you know, and the, <laughs> the description of, of our team, I, I do think it, it, it plays a part. And people got to do what they got to do to win. Um, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stoop that low. I'm not gonna talk about teams, and I'm not gonna talk about players. We got work to do. We've won a lot of basketball games doing it this way. We'll, we'll win a lot more because we're not we're not changing. We're, we're not going to change just because people are are saying what they what they say about our team. How dangerous is that narrative? 
mean, we're talking about young women, we're talking about athletes, and we're, talk, and, and and we're, we're talking, talking about, about the, black athletes yeah. too. I mean, how how difficult is it's, it's very difficult. I mean, how dangerous? Yeah. It, it's it's very dangerous, um, you know. But sports is a microcosm of of our society, and, and, and sometimes there are hurdles you just can't cross. It is what it is, but we're gonna keep pushing forward because that's what we do. We're, we're built for it, and I think that's probably the attitude that people take is we can handle it. We're built for it. This is what we do. Um, you know, but a night like tonight, you, you know, you, you really can't overcome it. So, ah, so much to say on that clip. Just from uh, okay, I want to say something. So, if, if you're saying that she's saying they lost because it got in their head, they didn't overhear it. If that okay, if that affects how they play, why would anyone of anybody who heard it? repeat it to the rest of the team to let it get in their head where it can mess up how they play. Right. They wouldn't because it didn't happen. And Don Staley's making it up and they're perpetuating it. But again, even think about what she says there. She's trying to play, you know, the pit bull. She's like, they do this because they know we're built for this. We were built for this. But then she goes, but it's actually what beat us. We're built for this narrative. We can handle it, but we lost because of it. Well, if you're built for it, then why did it bother you? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you have to see the video. So if you're listening on the podcast, God bless you. Thank you for listening on the podcast. Why don't you take a second to subscribe? Leave us a nice review. But go and check out this video. You have to see this video we just played because to see the white lady who asks this question of her about the danger. How dangerous is this, Dawn? this narrative that you made up in your mind. How dangerous is this narrative? You have to see the way that she cheeses before she gets to her question because of the way the guy tees up her question for her when he talks about this narrative about your team being rough and you know the way they play. And this white lady, she just smiles so wide knowing I get to lob my softball to Don Staley. It was kind of weird for her to just chime in with the that kind of vocabulary, danger. I'm like, what does that have to do with it? Why is it dangerous? Why would you say that? Because this is, for the media here, like this girl wasn't listening to Dawn Staley's press conference and going, taking in the information and asking a question. She had a question. I'm going to help perpetuate the racism narrative. Yeah. And I just need an opportunity to do that. And the guy T went up for her and she started cheesing. You got to see it right before she uh, leans into her question about the danger of made-up racial discrimination, right? So Dawn Staley's answer is racism beats South Carolina, not Iowa, right? But here you see the media. This is what we're talking about. They accept the lie. They perpetuate the lie. And then, you know, the media, and you heard it if you watched post-game coverage, they fight and they defend this lie, Um you know, again, they did it with Dawn Staley and BYU. As soon as the race hoax came out with Rachel Richardson, all the talking heads in the sports media blasted BYU. And this is racist. And this is what it was completely made up. But they don't care. No matter how many Jesse Smollett's they fall for, they'll always fall for the next one because they need the lie. It's just this mindset has infected every area of our life in America, it seems. I know. So how do we defend 
or fight against these lies because we see them everywhere. And I think it's simple, but it doesn't mean it's not true. We fight the lies with the truth. And yet that's the one thing that's not being offered to the the citizens in this country. And it once was, but it's not being offered anymore. Because God's word is the truth. And there was a time where our leaders recognized that and they offered that to the citizens. You know, I looked it up in here. I believe the first book printed in America was called the Bay Psalm book, printed in 1680. And it was an American printing of the Psalms. That's what they determined was the most important thing to get out in people's hands right away. The early Congress around 1780 approved and endorsed the Aitken's Bible, uh, which was the first Bible translation made in America. The Bible, you know, we know it used to be taught in school. Prayer was allowed in school. But all of that is gone today. And in its place, we're offered lies. Lies on top of lies on top of lies. We're offered the false idol of self-worship and pride, you know, is probably the most notable trait in America. And it's not pride in nation, right? It's just pride in self. It's, you know, we can see everywhere we look, the destruction that that sort of thing has brought about, the destruction it's caused in this nation. And that's kind of the point to this whole Donald Trump. Yeah, it's just a a symptom of the nation we live in, where we're just offered lies in the place of truth. Truth has largely been removed from the public spaces, from all the talking heads, from the media. It's all been replaced. Self-idolization, self-worship, pride, and everything about yourself is what we're given on a daily basis. So... It's just amazing how quickly... just in a, a few generations, just how wicked, uh, just prideful, selfish we can become without God. This is what happens. I mean, God, just the mention of his name or prayer in schools, it really has affected. Yeah, I mean, this gen- is what they say, you know, like when I think we said it before, when you let go of the rope, it goes fast. Yeah. And I mean, again, it really does. Read through the Bible, read through the book of Judges. You know, they're there, or, you know, we're going to get to one here, but you read through the book of Judges and it's wicked land. God raises yeah. up a judge. They turn back to God. Yeah. The judge dies. They're immediately wicked. Like it just, but this it goes, goes to fast. show that, like, I know we talked about this with our kids, but, um, that people say, um, well, some people believe, a lot of people believe that all people are really deep down, they're good. And we get to see from few decades going by without prayer or God in schools at all, not even just in schools, just people have just turned away from God. Or even just watered down Christianity. No, people are becoming more wicked. Like, that's such an obvious one to see. God is the one, him being the center of your life, you know, acknowledging God and his word and his ways are, are good and they're true. Um, yeah, I think and it's, it's easy to see. It's just easy to see that man is not good without God. Simple. No, we're not, <laughs> none of us, right? None are righteous. And, uh, you know, so all of that to say, 
on this idea of truth. Like you can't fix the nation. <laughs> we can't fix the nation. You can though fix you and your family. And that's where the fixing needs to take place. You know, you need to get off social media, turn off the news. We've all got to quit putting our faith in politicians and return to the truth, right? You've got to get back in church, open up your Bible, find time each day to get on your knees and cry out to God. You know, we don't win the nation back, but we can win our families back. And in so doing that, Mm. with family after family being returned to a faith in Christ, we do have a chance to rebuild this nation. That's the only way you fix it. You know, you're not going to go and fix it from the top down. It's not a political fix. No. It has nothing to do with who you vote for. That does not fix people's hearts. Like you said, it starts in the family, the family raising their children to love and fear God. Well, and the family is the building block God gave us. Yeah. That's the original building block. That's what everything's founded on, you know the family being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's the way it starts. That's the way it continues on. And that's the way it gets fixed. It's all the same. And I just want to share one story from scripture, kind of on the idea of what, you know, Nikki and I were just talking about with letting go of the rope and it goes fast um, before we get into our surveys here. Um, And it's kind of on this topic of revival, but really just how quickly the rope or how quickly you fall once you let go of the rope. And, um, I will just mention, you know, we were on the Theology Throwdown that we do monthly for the Christian Podcast community, and um, that's going to be our sermon recommendation at the end of the uh, at the end of the show. But we discussed the Asbury revival. You know, is it a real revival? That was kind of the topic that we were discussing. It was a good discussion, a lot of fun, a lot of people on there contributing. I do hope you go give it a listen. Um. But the point that I want to bring up is revival, and it's from 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 15 through 20. And do you want to read those verses, honey? Yeah. And she, who's the she in this? Sorry, it begins, and she said to this them. This was the prophetess that okay. they went and saw. Right. Okay. So when she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, Thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord uh, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. So the story goes on to tell of how King Josiah in his day rid the land of false idols, all the false teachers, and he returned the people to following God and following God's law. 
You know, it was a real revival in the land of Judah. As long as Josiah lived, as soon as Josiah died and the new king took over, I believe his name was Jehoahaz, God brought about his promised destruction on the land of Judah for their previous wickedness. And it happened quick. They were wicked. Josiah returned them to righteousness, uh, to righteous living. Josiah died and the judgment came. And, you know, I say that to say uh, our land has been immensely wicked for probably at least 60 years now, um, 70 years maybe. And it's certainly deserving of God's judgment, you know, and while he may or may not judge us, or is already judging us, depending on, you know, what you think is going on. You reap what you sow is is judgment. Yeah, and, you know, there's plenty of people that believe we're under judgment, and it'd be hard to argue against them. Um, but we can't stop what previous generations have already done and set in motion. And I'm not necessarily saying that previous generations have or haven't, or that God is or will judge us. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that what's done is done. Like in Josiah's day, the wickedness had already been done. God's judgment was already pronounced. But because Josiah was righteous, God spared him in his day and then brought about the judgment. So, you know, what we can do, we can't fix what our parents have done. And we can't fix what they do after we're gone. Right. But we can get ourselves right before God. That's what we have to be focused on. We can get our families right before God. And then we can pray to be spared in our day. Um, nothing, can, nothing stops us from praying that God would spare us in our day and spare our land going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, we can remove the false idols, the false teachers in our day. And we certainly need to. Um, calling them out and removing them. We certainly should be doing that, you know. Yeah, it's like a, God is judging. It's just so many people on the, so many so-called Christians, you know, on the wide road, so many that claim to bear the name of God, of Jesus. And that is serious. People living in willful sin, teaching, you know, the things we talk about, just the the transgender ideology and just the critical race theory, all this stuff. It's people who are claiming that that they bear the name of God, Christian. And I, I just wonder, is that more the judgment coming because people who bear God's name or say they do and living contrary to God? It could be. I mean, you know, God is more displeased with lukewarm than he is even evil. So I I mean, mean, how many, and we're going to touch on this when we get to our surveys uh, here in a little bit, Uh, a lot of lukewarm, um, if you even want to call it lukewarm, you know, so. It seems obvious that they're, that people are cold, but I guess living in sin and calling yourself a Christian is, is lukewarm because you're saying one thing, but you're living another way. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, like you mentioned the transgenderism stuff, I think that transgenderism debate that's going on in the country, I think is the perfect mirror to show us our depravity as a society. Like it really, that debate in and of itself shows us just how far we've turned from the truth, you know, and it, yeah, that's like when you can get to the one. point of rejecting reality, 
um, it just shows you how far you've gone. And it's not only that we've just simply turned from the truth, not just that we've rejected the truth, but you see so often that people just hate the truth. I mean, people who are Christians that say they're Christians believe this. And then there's those who are unbelievers that see how, that see the lie. Yeah. It's like they're more Christian than you are because they see evil for what it is. And the Christian's given them the excuse to live in that depravity. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, that's what God, God says it's okay, right? I just heard the Christian over there, Andy Stanley told me it's all right, you know, but they turn from truth, they reject truth, they hate truth. Um, And, you know, it's much the same, like we're saying, I mean, we see the same thing in faith and scripture speaks about it in the realm of faith. It's not just so much that people don't believe in God. The Bible doesn't even speak of atheists, really. It speaks of people that hate God, that turn yeah. from God, reject the truth and unrighteousness, mm-hmm. right? Um, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Yeah. So I guess yeah. you want to claim to be a fool, go for right. it. Um, but, you know, we don't even so much question. I mean, we do, I suppose. We do in large amounts question whether truth even exists, but we know it does. The problem is we hate it so much of this country hates the truth. And, you know, I was thinking about this as we were, you know, driving around work, like, you want to see what real faith looks like? Go watch the satanic left, the pro-abortion crowd, the transgenderism crowd. That's real faith. Those people will stand up and scream in your face, shut down, you know, events to proclaim to you that this guy, born a guy, is a woman. He will scream it from the, the rooftops. But do you think a Christian will get up there and go, well, I mean, I think the world was created around 10,000 years ago because that's what scripture says. No, they'd be terrified. Oh, I might look silly, but there's a guy dressing pretty, screaming from the rooftops that he's a girl because he has faith. He believes. Christians in this country, the lukewarm, I don't, I mean... You don't see faith like that from a whole lot of people claiming to be Christians, but that's what we need to turn back into. It used to be the case that we were the loudest in the room, you know, that we had the biggest voice, but that's not the case anymore. We've gone silent in many respects. And, um, but I don't want to leave you with despair because I do see hope. I see rays of hope, um, like little spots of encouragement that give me encouragement because ultimately God is in control. None of this is happening outside of God's control. It's all ordained. He's in control. Right. You know, I yeah. think, what well, I can't think of the psalm, but I think it's a wonderful psalm that it talks about, um, you know, when the floods came, God, or God was seated on his throne. Like, even when the floodwaters came, God was sitting there in complete and utter control. Mm-hmm. You know, so here we see, chaos. The floodwaters of chaos have come. God's sitting there completely Mm -hmm. in control. So you see rays of hope and you know you should be hopeful. Um, But you do see places where we've actually entered the fight after so many decades. You know, Um, We've come in, entered the fight to bring the truth. And it's not necessarily packaged in the way we want it to be packaged. Um, But, you know, we see people like Matt Walsh really taking the fight to the satanic left on yeah. this transgenderism uh, issue. 
and he's making headway and that gives you hope. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people like Abigail Johnson on the abortion issue, making a lot of headway. I mean, obviously Roe versus Wade being overturned is gives you hope, right? Um, and then there's even people that aren't necessarily even on our side, though we like to claim them, like Jordan Peterson. You know, he's gone and made a lot of logical, rational arguments right. for faith. I mean, we while just not need even being a faithful person people necessarily. with logic. Like it's like gone today. It's like, yeah, I'm glad someone's a Christian, but there's so many Christians who don't use logic. So it is refreshing, even if someone's not a believer, just to be like, thank you. <laughs> and on that topic, I didn't even think about this, but on the, the idea of logic, and I will put this book down in the description, encourage you guys to go uh, pick it up because I found a book. I would say by the grace of God, I was at a Christian bookstore walking around. Everything seemed wildly overpriced, which um, is why people shop on Amazon and they shouldn't. But I was combing through and I just saw these two books that looked raggedy, pulled them out. And it was two books by Francis Schaeffer, somebody I had just heard about. I never knew who Francis Schaeffer was. And I was like, ah, Francis Schaeffer, I guess I'll pick these up and, and give them a read. And they looked like this isn't a used bookstore? No, but they were certainly used. They isn't were $2 a book. And the first one, the one that I've been reading is called The God Who Is There. And he speak. I mean, it's all about this topic of, um, you know, he makes the case that the way that we think has been disrupted. We used to think in the way of, um, he kind of makes the example often in there that if A is true, then not A is the antithesis. Or if A is true, then not A is not true. That was the simple logic that our world relied on through all of history up until about the late 1800s, early 1900s. And then everything he talks about fell into a state of despair, um, where we went from this logical thought process of, if A is true, then not A is not true. And it became like a leap of faith sort of thinking where nothing's really true. You just kind of have to jump in a direction, you know, and we see a lot of that here where People love to say, you know, it's your truth. What's true to you well, is true. because emotions are truth now. So it's like, follow your heart. Your, your heart is you, your God. You know, that's why the Bible tells right, you self-idolizing. don't... self-idolizing. The heart is deceitful um, above all. Yeah, I mean, we talked yeah. about this when it's like, I mean, you're denying reality. You're born a man. I feel like a woman. There it is. He's a woman. Like... Oh, brother, how far have we fallen? But it's interesting reading this book because he wrote it in 1968. And the things that he talks about with homosexuality and just the trending of the way our nation is going. And you're like, good. He saw this in 1968. Boy, look where we are now. Like, too bad we didn't heed the warning then. Um, but, you know, there are people waking up. And I think that's an important thing to give us hope. There's people... You know, I even saw recently, me and Nikki were talking about it, J.P. Sears. You know, he's kind of a f- moderately famous, I guess, YouTube comedian you may have heard of. He has Awaken with J.P., I think. Mm-hmm. Mostly does political stuff. Um, but he even had a video coming out how he's a Christian now. And we got a lot of issues with the video. We thought about discussing it. But yeah. just the simple fact that he sees the world, he sees the denial of reality, and he thought, this can't be right, you know, and yeah. he's listening to the right people. 
in a sense, because he got a little bit woken up. He's still, I think, far off from where he needs to be. But yeah, it shows a little bit of a ray of hope that can encourage us to continue pressing forward. Um, right. At least he's seeing, like he was saying, pretty much he's in agreement with Christian uh, teachings, beliefs, you know, on how how a Christian should live. But I just want to say, pray for him, because I don't think he's, I don't think he's saved, because in his video, he didn't talk about salvation, the gospel, he didn't bring up Jesus. He pretty much was talking about like Christian principles. Um, yeah, it was a very more like, he's uh, leaning into Christian morality and yes. Christian without, yeah, so I mean, a lot of issues, but just the simple idea of someone going, oh man, there's got to be a better way. And he, you know, trended towards Christianity. So again, we may discuss the J.P. Sears. I think uh, you said uh, Mich- uh, Melissa, Melissa Doherty, Doherty yeah. did a great sort of uh, look at his video. She's a lot more sound, I think, in her uh, yeah. theology. Because I watched his video first, then I went and watched her critique of it. And it was just funny because everywhere she paused and commented it was exactly where I would have and and what I would have said was the same thing. It was just funny watching her reaction. I was like... I hope she's reacting at this point. And I'm like, oh, good. She did. She yeah, caught so on. So we don't necessarily need to retread old ground. You right. can go give Melissa Doherty's, uh, give them both a watch. Yeah. Because I don't think J.P. Sears is unique. I would venture to guess that's right. most people yes. who claim to be Christian are far more J.P. Sears yes. than, you know, whoever your great Christian, you know, that you want to tie. I would right. say John MacArthur, right? I think Far more J.P. Sears than John MacArthur. Yeah, I think he's still more like spiritual. He said a lot of things in there about like following your heart, listen to your heart because that's how God speaks to you. So I would, I know a lot of Christians say that too. So I just want to caution. Yes, don't take don't your theology take, from yeah, J.P. Sears. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but an interesting video, go give it a listen. Go give Melissa Doherty and place more weight in what Melissa Doherty says than J.P. Sears. Um, so, uh, but I am hopeful. That's my thing. And if we can get in the mindset that you can change you, you can fix you, you can change your family, you can fix your family, you know, start small, start local, right? And then even if you get your family fixed, maybe focus on your street, <laughs> go fix your street, right? You get your street fixed, go f- work on your block, the neighborhood. You know, don't think we got to save the nation. I'm going to DC. (laughs) You're biting off far more than you can chew. I promise you fix your family, encourage your friends and family to fix their family. That's the way we win it back. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was a lot to say. We haven't even really gotten to the news yet. (laughs) Um, I just had to, you know, that was on my my mind as I was, you know, listening to things, reading things this week was just, boy, we just want to believe the lie in this nation. We just want the lie so bad. And we as Christians, we can't accept the lies. We can't run from the truth. We got to lean into it. Um, and that's hard at times, right? Um, people believe the lie because it's easy. Um, it's comforting. You know, it makes them feel some sort of way. I don't know what sort of way, but it makes them feel some sort of way. But the truth, right, it confronts you. It confronts your feelings and your emotions and your, your desires. And it tells you most times those are all wrong. The truth <laughs> you know? really does hurt. And it no humbles you and 
pride keeps you from wanting to be humbled. And even if it's foolish to hold on to some lie, you'll keep fighting for the lie because you're fighting for your pride. You don't want to admit you're wrong or, yeah. Yeah, and pride is, that is the great American virtue today. And as Christians, again, I think I posted this on YouTube and uh, TikTok earlier this week, Luke 14, 26. It always gets the attention where, because Jesus says, you know, if you don't love, if you don't hate your father and your mother, your what, you know, wife and children, whatever. And that's kind of what gets most of the attention in that verse. But he says, even yourself, if you don't hate even yourself, you can't be my disciple. And pride is 180 degrees in the opposite direction or in the opposite direction from where Christ wants you to be. You know, John 3.30, John the Baptist says, I must decrease so he can increase. Um, you must decrease. You must make sure Christ is increasing. You must hate even yourself. You know, pride is, I mean, it's the root of all sins. So do you have any last topics on just that idea, that thought before we roll into our surveys here? Oh, let's do the survey. Whether you want a laid-back trail to hit with friends or you're planning something more adventurous, All Trails Plus is your guide to making the most of your time outdoors. Get outside today with three free months of All Trails Plus with code PODCAST23 at alltrails.com slash podcast. All right, so we got two surveys, one more just uh, American society broadly. And these aren't, I think they came out more last week possibly, but we didn't have time to get to them last week. But do you want to read the headline, honey? Uh, traditional values like patriotism, religion, and community have plunged dramatically among Americans. And then just these first couple paragraphs. Or no, I'm sorry, read. Yeah, just these first couple paragraphs. Uh, Long-held values like patriotism, religion, and community involvement are in retreat across America, according to a stunning poll released Monday. The Wall Street Journal survey found that just 38% of Americans say patriotism is very important to them, down from 70% who said the same in 1998. Slightly more Americans, 39%, place the same importance on religion, down from 62% who said faith was very important to them 25 years ago. The percentage of Americans who said raising children was very important fell to 30% in the new poll, down from 59% in 1998. Meanwhile, the share of Americans who valued involvement in their community was very important, fell to 27%, down from a high of 62% in 2019, the last time the question was polled. Yeah, so uh, when it comes to what's important to Americans, um, patriotism fell 42%. <laughs> Religion fell 23%, raising children down 29%, and community involvement fell 35%. And that's just in 25 years. They've bottomed out like that. One generation. Yeah. One generation. That's what that's... Ronald Reagan said, right? We're always one generation Yikes. from, what is he, losing freedom, or freedom's always one generation away makes or something. You wonder, like, our grandchildren, what is the world going to be like? Yeah. And again, this poll gives you a little bit of indication. So what did the Americans replace those values with? Well, what else would they replace it with? Money. 
Because the poll goes on to claim um, that those who view money as very important rose 12 percent. Yeah, the only one that went up. The only one that went up in this (laughs) poll here. Money went up 12 percent in that same time period. So we've replaced selfless values with selfish values. And again, you can say there we traded the truth for a lie. Because we as a nation, we're largely buying into the lie that, um, in fact, money can buy happiness. We've always known that to be a lie. Money cannot buy happiness. No, no, no. In 2023, last 25 years, money, in fact, can buy happiness. And it is worth noting here, you know, because you read a lot in scripture and talk about it, you know, when Christ speaks about the rich in scripture. Uh, You know, like in Matthew chapter 19, verse 23, he says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, when he says that, he's speaking about you. (laughs) He's speaking about us. We are that rich person. You know, I read in an article somewhere, um, I can't remember where it was, but They said that to be in the top 1% of income earners in the world, you needed to make $34,000 a year. And this might be a couple of years old, so maybe it's slightly higher. But considering the average American makes around $50,000 to $60,000 per year, we are the rich people who will have difficulty entering heaven. And I think that realization should terrify you. Because I know it terrifies us because I know how materialistic we can be. How often just something new and shiny and flashy is on our mind. And we're hardly the rich. I mean, even the people who don't make that amount a year, I think it's affected everybody. I think because the government swooped in and gives everything for free. And I think greed is in a lot of people's heart. It's not even the rich. It's like, we can't even like divide by how much you make. No, right. I mean, I would say, yeah, largely most people in this country would be considered the rich because, and again, this is what satanic, you know, communist governments do. They want to be your God because they want to replace God. Yeah. So they... They're the ones who take care of you. You know, back in the day, right? Blessed are the poor for they will inherit or for blessed are the poor for they will inherit the kingdom of God. But they don't care for that. And we're no longer poor necessarily because the government's giving us everything we need. We don't need to rely on God anymore. Yeah, like the, they are did. the rich, is my point. The people who get everything from the government are the ones also. I mean, not just them. I'm not saying all of them. But it's like you're the person who's inherited money or possessions. I'd say the people who rely on the government, they're in that position. Yeah, they're, I mean, I would say they're certainly in the position just like us as well. They've inherited. Yes. And they know where to turn when they need help, right? It used to be turned to God. Now it's turned to Uncle Sam and he'll take care of you. Yeah, so I think it's just a little different today because how our nation is set up. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's done purposefully yeah. to turn people from God 
Yeah. And people are, in fact, turning from God. They are the rich who no longer need God. And it's a lot of people who are being lazy and not wanting to work, like we see just around here. I mean, I mean, we talked about all the the people on drugs. I mean, they're able-bodied. They could work. Standing there with a sign, um, they could work, but... Yeah, no, I mean, it's a shame. And like I said, it ought to terrify you to consider you are the rich that God is talking about. Um, they are the rich, right? But do you see people that are terrified and doing what they can to ensure that they're living righteous lives? No, <laughs> you don't see that anywhere, by and large, right? What you see is people that just desire to acquire simply more riches, right? Yeah. They're not desiring to live more righteous lives. They want to store up more riches here. Um, so, you know, Jesus was obviously exactly right in Matthew 19, 23. Um, and I think really, as we get into this next survey, I think that'll kind of show us that we're a nation of the rich and it's a difficulty for us to enter heaven. And I think our next survey yeah. speaks to this a little bit. So do you want to read uh, the headline here on our next survey? Four types of church members based on their frequency of attendance. And then just that paragraph down here. All right. At Church Answers, we have been engaged with church leaders for years. We asked them to discern the base level of commitment of their church members. Though these numbers are not precise, they do represent the essence of what we've learned. We classified church members into four categories according to their frequency of attendance. We did not include church members who never attend. They should not be on church rolls anyway. Yeah, so, you know, look at these numbers down here. And again, he says this isn't a scientific survey, but I think it's actually a more interesting survey because it's kind of a questionnaire for the mm. pastors of their churches. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what the pastors notice in their church. So listen to these numbers. He labels them core members, marginal members, fading members, and cultural members. Core members, they say, attend church three to four times a month, and that is an estimated 30% of your church. So pastors estimate 30% of their church attend three to four times a month. The marginal members, they say, attend church one to two times a month. And that's 25% of their church. The fading members is four to 10 times per year. And that's 25% of the church. And then the cultural members, one to three times per year. And that makes up 20%. So those are the ones that just go on like holiday. Yeah, they're the Eastern, Eastern and Christmas Christians. Christians. Um, Mother's Day would be the other one. I heard that Mother's Day, Mother's Day was yeah. actually like... Got to make mom happy, right? The, the, it was more than... Like Easter and Christmas, actually. I would bet Mother's Days are always packed. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so according to what these pastors talked about, roughly 55% of the church would be regular church attenders. That's what they consider. People who regularly attend, you know, two to four times a month. There's only half the church. And they go on in here to explain what they mm. mean kind of by each of these groups. And it says, for the core members, um, 80 to 90% of the church's financial giving comes from the core members. Hmm. 
And I would guess that's spot on. Yeah. You know, pastors generally know who gives and who doesn't. And this really lines up with previous surveys that we've looked at before where it talks about, you know, 5%, you know, of your church membership is actually uh, contributing like mm-hmm. a full 10%. Yeah. And then, you know, a handful of people might contribute once a year, whatever happens to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember we went to a church membership meeting in Alaska and it was yeah. something like 13% of the church gave at least one penny that year. And that considered giving to the church. Only 13% of the entire church. And they went all the way down to who just dropped a penny in the offering You know what's sad? Because it was a lot of military in that church. Yeah. You guys all have a job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So this kind of speaks to what we just looked at in our last survey. Who or what do you love? Or who or what do you value more? God or money? Well... Most of America values this money. This shows like how narrow it is. When you think about who is faithful, who appreciates their pastor and will tithe, who... It is scary reading these. Yeah, really. it's eye-opening. And, you know, 30% of your church gives nearly 100% of the contributions. So 70% of your church ain't given nothing. because. What we looked at last time, where do their values lie? Money. And uh, I think that's pretty interesting. But he goes on to talk about the marginal members here. And one of the statements he makes in there is that they are lukewarm. He says that Mm. they have a lukewarm commitment. Um, Right here it says their commitment to the church or to Christ's church is lukewarm. These are the ones that go one to two times one a to month. two times a month now uh to be sure and he doesn't really get into this here but we would say they don't necessarily say the reasons why they don't attend but you most certainly have dedicated church members um that would attend you know maybe you have the elderly or the right. sickly or whatever that yes. otherwise would be regular core members of your church but they just can't right um but I don't think that's who they're trying to focus on. These are probably more people who are perfectly capable of attending, but they're lukewarm, right? They can either go to church or not go to church. It depends on what else happens on the weekend. Um, so I think we would be fooling ourselves to think that the vast majority of the marginal members are sort of the sick and elderly. Because um, again, the pastor notes that, or the the surveyor notes from the pastors that these are lukewarm Christians. Um, you know, they kind of believe in God, but it's like, let's not go crazy about it. Every weekend, man, that's a stretch, right? So that's the marginal members. It talks about the fading members here. And he says that they are fading away. Uh, you know, and you could figure that maybe these Christians are the ones who, maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe as they got older and moved out, they still sort of felt the need he doesn't say this. This is just my own thoughts. Maybe they sort of felt the need that they had to kind of continue to go to church, mm-hmm. but older they get, the further they get away from mom or whatever happens to be, and they really just didn't have the faith, right? The church sort of loses its importance. They may still go occasionally, but they're fading away. Eventually, they'll no longer be attenders. 
And uh, then the final one here was the cultural. And I think with the cultural one, the last one here, I think is, um, or the, the important part here is the last sentence down here. Um, he says, let me find it. I might've been the second to last one. Yeah. He says, though we estimate that the cultural account for 20% of membership of a typical number, that number is declining. Hmm. Um, so this 20% here that are cultural, they're probably better to be lumped in with unbelievers who simply don't attend the church. Mm-hmm. They're cultural. They sort of, I like to say I'm a Christian. Maybe it makes you feel good. And, uh, you know, I like to claim that I have some sort of grasp on morality, whatever it happens to be. But as far as really believing in God and all, yeah, it's not really high on my just, priority list. I'm, yeah, they just show up to make others believe that there's they're okay. Or what was the one that talked about those who, I don't know if you already said it in here. Like those who have like kids sports on the weekend. And so they put their kids sports before church. Yeah. And I would say those are probably the more marginal ones. That's probably who's classified in there as the marginal. I don't know if it talks about them in this article here, but I would say those are at best the more marginal, right? I can't go to church on Sunday because my kids got a baseball game. Yeah, I think that, I think that's a huge thing to talk about though, because you're putting, you're teaching your kids, like our whole point, you know, and like changing the nation, you know, if you're going to make a difference, you know, you got to start with your family, but you can't be teaching your kids that their talent in their sport is more important than their spiritual growth. Like you have one kid and the whole family doesn't go to church because we got to focus on this kid instead of on God. They're more important. Like you're, you're starving your family spiritually for the sake of this one or, or if they're all in a sport, I don't know, but really you can't do that. You are not helping your family, helping your children by putting their sport. I don't, I don't know how people look at it. Is it their, is it a part of like socialization? Like how do people argue that this is important? that this is necessary, that this is good to miss church even one Sunday a month? No, What I is mean, the argument for it? You know, I'm sure in your mind, right, you tell yourself, I'm a Christian, I believe, just got these other priorities. Or is it I like that I paid for this and we need to do it because we paid for it? Or my kids started this, they got to finish it because I don't teach them to start something and not finish it. But what about your faith? I think it's just priorities, you know, it's far more important that, you know, the kid be great at whatever sport that they happen to be playing, you know, not necessarily. I, I desire that my kids place faith in Christ, the fellowship of the the believers as the number one priority in their life. I just don't think that that's the case for most people, you know, and maybe they don't dislike church. Maybe they even, you know, enjoy going, whatever happens to be, but like, there's more important things. And and the fellowship I, yeah, with like other believers said, though. Like 
I love going to church. Like, I didn't like missing church. You love the people there. You want to worship God with them. I don't know what, what church is for some people. It's just they go just for themselves to feel good. So it's not a big deal if they miss and they can get the same thing online or Well, I do think to... this is kind of that J.P. Sears mentality of it's a works-based faith. Like, I have to go to church. God expects of me to go to church. So to make sure I can claim my Christian faith, I must go to church instead of, no, you go to church because the Holy Spirit resides in you. And that's where the Holy Spirit longs to be is in a place worshiping God, right? Like it's, you know, it's just that mindset of, you know, you don't adhere to God's commandments because you're working towards your salvation. You adhere to God's commandments because you love God and you want to do what's right in his sight. Yes. I mean, it's, it may look the same, but the heart's different. That's the big the change. The reason for doing it is different. Yeah. And I think that's what's kind of interesting about this survey, because it's really this next part that I think fascinates me, because again, this is pastors being questioned. And they say, kind of what's the church's response here um, to these numbers, this idea of the core members and all these people. And they say here, what the pastors believe of their core members, 90% of those they believe are true Christians. Of the marginal members, pastors believe only 60% are Christians. The fading members, 30%. The cultural are 10%. According to what the pastors believe, who know them. Yeah, pastors should know their flock. That's, so I don't know the size of the church, the churches for this. Yeah, and the size would certainly. For them to know. You know, we kind of talked about, you know, this is Saddleback Church. Uh-huh. They don't know anybody there, right? By and large, they probably don't know ninety-five percent of the church. It's too big, too much. But yeah, in your local church, maybe a hundred, two hundred people. Pastors probably have a good bead on right who these people are, and I think you know you can put some stock in these numbers. But I agree. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you should dismiss it. I think this is actually a pretty fascinating, fascinating way to pull people, pull the pastors, pull the ones that are actually there overseeing the church and the believers, and say. Hey, man, you see these guys, or you don't, (laughs) every Sunday, you live in the communities with them. What do you suspect? You know, judge the tree by their fruit. And the pastors are going, you know, those marginal and below, maybe 60% at best really believe in God. And, you know, that's something that we feel, um, you know, this real, or the American Christianity needs to kind of come to a realization with. And we really need to begin to adjust to and sort of develop a game plan for, you know, because we're not the 60 to 65% Christian nation that you always hear that number tossed around. Again, just ask the pastors here. They're saying um, just of their church members, over 50% of the people who are on their membership roles are less than 30% of those people are Christian in their own eyes. So, Mm. you know, just looking at this sort of simple anecdotal evidence here, those who attend church even once a year, less than 60% of those are Christian. Um, so we've discussed this number before. There was a survey last year, I think it was, by Barna, and they talked about how 
of this nation has a biblical worldview. And I think that that is a far closer number and a far more correct number Mm -hmm. of Christians in this nation than 60%. It may not necessarily be as low as 6%, but I think it's closer to 6% than it is to 60 to 65%. Well, like the Jordan Peterson, I I think he has a biblical worldview. He might not be a Christian, but I think he would be in that 6% to at least have a closer to a biblical worldview. Yeah. I mean, I guess it just depends on how you classify biblical worldview. True. True. Um, Because he does have, you know, some aspects where, you know, he might fall outside of it, but. Yeah. I I, I haven't listened to him in a while. I, I didn't know if he ended up believing because a lot of people were talking about he was on kind of the verge of believing he may have he may have actually you know i don't know where it was that one video he was emotional talking about jesus he does his exodus series i think on the daily wire he talks about scripture a lot so maybe he had um and you know some things that he believes a lot of people who claim to be christians believe you know Although I would disagree that theistic evolution exists. A lot of Christians hold to the evolution model to some sense. So you can debate whether or not that's a biblical worldview. I might question it. Um, but, you know, Jordan Peterson certainly, I think, is still in the evolution camp. Oh, was he? Um, but, you know, again, we tying this back into what we started with, we live in a nation of lies. And so many of us, maybe most of us, have bought into those lies at some level, um, either out of simple wariness, right? You just get beaten down because it's difficult to fight the onslaught of deceitfulness that we're faced with every day. I mean, you literally, we've talked about it here many times. You can't believe anything on the surface that the news media political class tells you. You have to go into every one of these topics and go, that's a lie. I have to figure out what the truth is. That's tiring. That's especially in today's world where we get bombarded with the world's problems every single day through social media, 24 hour cable news media. Um, You know, but then there's also the camp where maybe you just like the lie, you know, because it fits or it agrees with your lifestyle, your own desires, you know, but whatever the reason happens to be, we have to be aware, you know, that Christianity, even though remnants of this sort of Christian founding remains in the nation. We're a minority position in this country. We have Mm -hmm. to come to that realization if we're going to develop a game plan and have the right mindset to go into rebuilding this nation. You know, and that's kind of the idea of starting small, starting with your family. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't say, oh, we've got a hundred troops. We're going to go and take China. No, maybe Go and take an outpost on the outskirts of Mongolia. Take one outpost, mm. right? Don't go into the heart of Beijing with 100 people and think you're going to win the war. Mm. It's not going to happen, right? But you can start small. You got to build up the faith of the ones you already have, you know? Yeah. You have to start small. The ones who trust you. I mean, your, your, your children. They're... And that's the thing. If you can't win your family to Christ, you, you ain't winning Washington, D.C., that cesspool of wickedness. You get your kids first. And first off, get your kids first. You know, don't worry about what Mitch McConnell's doing. Worry about your kid. That's who God gave you charge over. 
Um, you know, so again, we can't focus on taking the nation back. Um, we're, um, I would say a minuscule percentage of the population. So mm-hmm. we need to focus, like Nikki said, winning on our, or win, winning our families back. Um, and I would throw into that, have big families, <laughs> uh, have lots of kids, encourage your kids as they get older to get married young and for them to have lots of kids and then encourage them to raise those kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Again, that's the way you sort of build back. Yeah. Um, build it in your own family. I mean, my goodness, you know, I came from a family with my grandmother. Um, you know, she, I think had over a hundred grandchildren by the time she died. That's a nice small little village back in the day. And you have a chance to, you know, be instrumental in their faith in the way they grow. Um, some of you probably come from much bigger families than that. You're right. So control what you can control, have a lot of kids, mm-hmm. um, encourage your kids to have a lot of kids and raise them loving God. Like Nikki was saying, don't put sports first. Don't put money first. Don't put college degrees first and put God first and teach them to put God first. It doesn't mean you'll bat a thousand percent, but do everything you can to bat a thousand percent. Um, so don't go into this with the mindset of it's I'm winning the nation back or bust, right? Because you're going to be sad. You're going to be frustrated. And then you'll run the risk of your faith wavering. Um, you know, Donald Trump's probably going to be the Republican nominee. If that somehow shakes your faith because you're like, oh, we need a righteous man to save the nation. No, you got it wrong. You go save your household um, and then work on your street. So, you know, and with that, tying this back into that previous survey, focus on getting those in your church to actually believe in God. Again, looking at those numbers there. Yeah. Half of your church, at least, doesn't actually even believe in God. Um, so re-evangelize your own church. Reach out to those who aren't the frequent attenders and then see what has them preoccupied. You know, I think one of the greatest harvest fields in America that really <laughs> needs to be reaped is the church. The church is the ripe harvest field. They're yeah. there, but they don't actually believe. I agree that, with you. I mean, if you can't convince somebody who's already coming to your church to believe in God, good luck with Nancy Pelosi. Good luck with Joe Biden, right? You better focus on the people that are actually showing up that still don't really believe. Again, according to these surveys, that's a harvest field that's right. Well, that was like my whole testimony when I stood up in church, um, a smaller church we were going to before we moved to Florida, I don't know, a few years ago. But my, because it was like during a night where it's like, um, like a outreach night or something where they invite people to come to the church and they want people to go up on, on the stage and give their testimony. And it's more for the people coming in who aren't saved yet, who might be listening to your testimony. But in my mind, I was like, no, my testimony is how I lived lukewarm as a believer for years. And so I was focused on others in the church, already in the church, who were like I was maybe and living lukewarm. And so I kind of just went on with, with that testimony of how 
I thought I was saved, but maybe I wasn't saved because that was so lukewarm. You know, I believe the false gospel, you know, say, say a prayer and you're saved and, and live how you want, because, right. you know, abusing grace. So that was my message. But so many people came up to me afterwards and were like, wow, that really convicted me. I'm like, good. I'm so glad. Like I had an impact, even if no people came in, um, unbelievers, you know, to be saved. Like I want the church revived, like what you're talking about. Like we need, yeah, we need people to be convicted people in the church. We need them to feel that conviction. Like that's a good thing. Like I wish I would have heard a message like mine, you know, years ago and had fear of the Lord that I didn't, I didn't have the fear of the Lord before so many years of saying I was a Christian. So I think that's a, it is, it's a right perfect place to start. You know, your churches are full. Their membership roles are full of people that in fact, haven't given their heart to Christ. Yeah. Start there, start with your family, start with your church. You don't need to bring in everybody else and reach the community. Like they're already there in your church. Well, and that's the silly (laughs) thing too, of this whole seeker sensitive mentality like we're bringing in more and more unbelievers and sinners and sinners, but the people that are still in that building that have already come in, they don't believe yet, but you're just like, ah, we'll forget about them. Bring in more, bring in more, bring it. No, man, you got people in your church that have probably been there for years. They don't actually believe. And again, as James three mm. says, those teachers will be under greater condemnation. Yeah. I would focus on the people in your building uh, before you go and That's try like- to, win Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping to Christ. It's like what we said, like your own children, focus on them. Don't overlook your children and assume they're good because they're in your family and they go to church with you. Like you can't even ignore your own flock. Like if you're overseer of a church, don't assume that they're Christians because they attend. Don't assume your kids are Christians because they're a part of a Christian family. It's the right. same and I would thing. say with that as pastors, don't assume that you can somehow save the city. Yeah. I think that's a very prideful thing. Like you need to get the people you have and you need to work and shepherd and yeah. lead. And don't just think I'm Rick Warren, baby, bring in all of Los Angeles and I'm going to get them all say, no, I mean, why don't you get a few, get them, you know, and maybe, you know, this might be a discussion for another day, but just the idea of mega church in general, not being a a overall positive for this country. Maybe smaller is better. You know, know the people that are in your church and you actually have a chance people to... People like the mega churches because they like to just sneak in and out and they don't want accountability. Yeah, I would believe but that's But that's what a lot of people do of say. I've heard so many people say that. Yeah. So we do want to get this last story in here um, just because we've talked about Carl Lentz here on this show before. Um do you have any last top or thoughts on the surveys at all before we just briefly touch on Carl Lentz? No, let's let's move on. So we're not right. too long. We do want to get to our Bible topic as well. So do you want to read this headline? Carl Lentz, former Hillsong, New York City pastor, joins uh, Transformation Church as a strategist. Yep. And uh, yeah, just this first paragraph. 
More than two years after a sex and leadership scandal led to his firing from Hillsong Church, uh, New York City, Carl Lentz is now back in ministry as a strategist at the Transformation Church led by Pastor Michael Todd in Tulsa, Oklahoma. (laughs) Yep. So Carl Lentz, you guys remember the disqualified former pastor of Hillsong, New York, uh, Justin Bieber's pastor. Uh, He's joining Mike Todd's largely female-led church, uh, if you want to call them that, to help them strategize. Is this, is this, um, I've never heard of this uh, title. It's just something they they made up just for him, or is this something that existed before he came on? I wonder if it's more of a way to bring him on and sort of without ease him back into a main leadership yeah because you would bring a lot of attention on saying we just hired carl lentz to be our pastor right but when you go yeah he's just so he's a, a vague help us strategize. title how could, i don't know so he's yeah. being paid to help them strategize i mean hey he led a mega church and had a bunch of celebrities which celebrities love michael todd just the same um, but here is the, uh, the executive staff. If you're watching on the video, if not, the links will be in the show notes. Go check out Michael Todd's transformation church executive staff here. This is what Carl Lentz is joining. Um, you have two effeminately dressed men and three women as your pastoral team. And then how do you round that out? Well, you're bringing a disgraced, sexually immoral former pastor. Well, this pastor, he, yeah, he's, they're definitely progressive on their website. They make it known we're a progressive church. They believe in more than two genders. Yeah. And well, and Michael Todd actually just came under a lot of heat recently for talking about how the trans community is welcome. He's like, trans is in the name transformation right so he came under a lot of heat for that but um if this is what your church's executive or pastoral team looks like two effeminate men and three women please for the sake of your own soul go and find a real church michael todd and transformation church is not it um that is that is a wide road church um, please go and find yes, yourself a real church. So that's all we wanted to say about Carl Lentz. He's back. Uh, it's been two years. And well, I will say one more thing because I think what lesson you can learn from Carl Lentz, and there's probably been many others like him. I see it again as a sin of pride because I think if Carl Lentz was a and I don't know his soul, right? I don't never really listen to the man preach. I've never heard a sermon by him. But if you were truly a repentant follower of Christ, you would realize you've disqualified yourself. You are no longer qualified to be an overseer of God's church, a Christ church. But I think it's pride of man that says, I'm Carl Lentz. I'm a pastor. Yeah. I'm a church overseer. Because you think if he was repentant and humble, he might go to transformation, maybe sit in the first row, but that's all he would do, right? Maybe go lead a small group somewhere. But 
I think it's pride in yourself that leads you. And you see this with pastors a lot. They're disgraced. You know, we've talked about our pastor in Alaska before, you know, removed from the church for financial impropriety. He's disqualified himself, but what does he do? Well, slinks away in the middle of the night. Next thing you know, he pops up as a pastor of another church, unqualified to be in that role. And, you know, I think that's a calling card of one of these sort of lukewarm, marginal, probably not a Christian, um, things that you can recognize. And you see like, hey, man, if you're really a believer and you really believe that the Bible is the word of God and these qualifications were handed down from the Holy Spirit, then you'd have humility and say, I'm not qualified for this anymore. I had a chance. I blew it. I need to own that. And now it's just about me being a slave of yeah. Christ, a servant of Christ. the whole thing is being... Um... Like he could have, I guess, if he was a pastor, I don't know if he could go back to the fellowship at the church he was head over and put himself under, um, you know, under someone else and just be part of the congregation to I mean, be restored. You certainly could. You, you know? certainly could. And that's something they mentioned in this article uh, about Carl Lentz. And it doesn't really go into it, but they're like, he took two years away to work on himself and his marriage. But it doesn't mention that he sat two years under church discipline being reconciled to the faith. It says he took two years away to go and work on his marriage and his own you know, self and faith. So he didn't even stay in the church at all? No, I mean, he left in disgrace, but it doesn't yeah. say anything about maybe he did sit under church discipline. He's still disqualified. But this just makes it sound like he stepped away from the church, went with his family, and good on him. He made the marriage work, which is awesome. Kudos for that. He does have kids, I believe, so that's important. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't even mention necessarily that he took the steps to be reconciled and counseled. Mm -hmm. You know, so it just, it speaks of pride to me. And like so much that we've talked about today and so much that we see in the world is it's pride, even in our pastors. And again, what's sad about that is you know, we want the world to come and find out the truth. Well, what happens when you go to Transformation Church and Carl Lentz is there, the one speaking to you? And you're like, man, I, I remember this dude. Wasn't he the one basically letting his privates hang out, walking with Justin Bieber? Like, this is the guy I'm supposed to learn about how to live righteously from? Give me a break, right? So uh, it's just it's frustrating, but... Please go find yourself a good church. They exist in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I promise you. Though they may not be filled with celebrities and flashy lights and rock bands, they exist. You can find them. So, all right. Last chance to discuss the news before we roll into this long overdue Bible topic. No, let's all righty the news. then. <laughs> We are going to take some time to discuss this Bible topic. We've had to skip it the last few weeks just due to the length of the you know discussions that we were having, the videos and stuff that we were watching. Uh, we just had to sort of cut this out. But we feel it's important. I mean, that's why we're talking about it. Because really, I think outside of the gospel, which is the most important thing we need to hear, I'm not sure what's more important in our society today than to talk to people about sin. It doesn't get talked about enough. It doesn't get talked about properly, I don't feel. Right. 
So I think it's important to discuss. And again, we're using Mark Jones's book, Knowing Sin, as kind of our discussion starters, if you will. And we're in chapter four. So uh, you can go check out the previous videos. What's if you this chapter hear. called? This chapter is called Sin's Vocabulary. And uh, if you prefer yeah. to just go pick up the book, we'll have affiliate links down in the show notes for that as well. You can go um, grab this book for yourself. It's a pretty easy read. Well, it's a, it's not easy, I guess. It's not a thick read, but it does get a little bit difficult at times um, because, again, it's a topic we don't really discuss very often. So, But it's a good read. It's important. And like we said, this is about sin's vocabulary. And I think it's an interesting topic to discuss um, when talking about sin because Mark, jo or Mark Jones points out in here, the Bible uses many different words to speak about sin. You know, just the same as we could say the Bible uses a lot of different terms to talk about, you know, righteousness or mm -hmm. God's law. You know, you might hear precepts, statutes, commands, I mean, all these different words to make the same point. And we see that with sin. Um, and in the book, Jones notes... He says, to merely describe sin as missing the mark is a gross injustice to the actual vocabulary of the Bible in the nature of sin. Yeah, because a lot of churches today don't even say sin. They say, you know, when they're trying to share the gospel and get someone to raise their hand, they'll say something like, you've made some mistakes, made some mistakes in life, and it, it needs to be stressed who it's against for one, which is never mentioned, hardly ever. And what's, yeah, like the point of this chapter, what is sin? Like, I think that's just the weakest um, definition I've ever heard or explanation of it. It's just Yeah, or mistake. even just kind of giving the idea of, yeah, you made mistakes or, you know, we're all I, fallen. Yeah. You know, we're all... You know, just kind of making that like we're all general. Hurt. We're broke. We're just broken people. We're just broken and we need God to, we just need to experience his love. Like that's what they, yeah. And this is really one of the things that drew me originally to the Puritans, you know, is the language that they used, not just to describe like heaven and God, but the way they would describe sin and hell. Like it was so vivid and colorful. Like, I just pulled this small little snippet here from Jonathan Edwards' famous Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So just listen to the way a Puritan preacher talks about sin. He says, The use of this awful subject may be for awakening unconverted persons in this congregation. This that you have heard is the case of every one of you that are out of Christ. That world of misery that lake of burning brimstone is extended abroad under you. There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. And that makes you like love God. You know, the fact that you're alive and breathing in this moment and you're an unbeliever, like, praise God. 
you have a chance to call on him. Right. It he also, is good that you're not you're not dead and judged right now. You're alive. You have a chance to call on him. And that's the sort of preaching that leads you to a proper fear of God. And this yes. is something I think we talked about last week. Over and over and over again, you faith in God is tied very closely with fear of God. Mm-hmm. And that fear of God comes from knowing just what Jonathan Edwards said here. You're held up by nothing but the pleasure of God. There's nothing holding you from that burning brimstone yeah, and you fear except him. the pleasure of God. You fear him because you know he's the judge of your soul. He can be your savior or he can be your judge. Yeah. And he will be one or the other. That is it. But I mean, have you ever heard a preacher speak to a congregation about what awaits an unrepentant sinner in this manner? This is the kind of preaching we need. Like growing up, you know, I've heard people just say like, oh, it's not one of those. Don't go to one of those fire and brimstone preaching churches. I'm like, why? Do people not like that? Why has that been something I've heard throughout my life? Fire and brimstone, like that's bad. Like that's well, that's good. what that's really good. We need we need that. <laughs> Puritans got labeled, you know, as fire and brimstone preachers a lot, but it's not because they're a fire and brimstone. I mean, they spoke as vividly and more so about heaven and eternity and God's presence, but they were very real and understood you know, what actually awaits a sinner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, cause I've never heard preaching like this, you know, and this is why we talk about so much people see Jesus as somebody to supercharge their life. I mean, all the sermons are, he'll help you overcome. You know, we talked about the Stephen Furtick, you know, it was Moab Moses month. Your <laughs> month is over. And God is moving you to a new whatever. New, like People think their, their greatest need is money coming from somewhere or getting a job. Like They have no idea. They're just hanging right above hell. And they're coming to a different God, a different Jesus to give them the world. Yeah, you're literally one errant step off a curb into traffic from being dropped into that burning brimstone. But you think, <sighs> I just, I need a raise at work. And that's what God's going to help me with. Man, your, your mind is all sort of garbled up there. But we should hear preaching like this. I mean, because why would you soft sell eternal judgment, eternal yeah. torment? Like, it's got to just be to ease your own conscience. Or again, the seeker mentality. Most of the lost world doesn't want to hear what awaits them in eternity without Christ. So we're all fallen. You've missed the mark. God understands and he loves you. This is what they really need to hear. Mm. Um, Not just the unsaved, but also the saved. They need to have that fear of God. Um, Because again, scripture speaks over and over again. Faith in God is a proper fear in God or fear of God. Those are tied very closely Mm -hmm. together. Um, But in this chapter, Jones goes on to describe how the Old and the New Testament each sort of describe sin in their own ways. Um, He points out that in the Old Testament, we see words like, for one, missing the way that is there, but also things like rebel, faithlessness, Mm -hmm. abomination, mischief, wickedness. Mm -hmm. 
There's trouble, wrong, error, fraud, or crime. Um, there's words like iniquity or transgressions are other words that you'll hear used for sin. And then in the New Testament, you'll see, you know, sin sort of addressed directly, sin. But you'll also hear terms like the flesh or lawlessness, transgressions again, trespasses. You hear of uncleanness or ungodliness. Um, and, you know, there's more than that probably that you can pull out of Scripture. Um, but they all sort of speak of that appalling character of sin, Joan says, of sinning against a holy and righteous God. You know, but how we use these terms and really when we use these terms, um, they can have a differing effect on those that we're speaking with, right? You know, if you tell a person that ah, they just, you missed the mark, you know, that just doesn't punch the same as telling them that they're lawless or an abomination. And there may be times, maybe it's for a brother in Christ who has fallen into sin. And you can tell them, listen, man, you missed the mark. You know, you know what you did was wrong. Maybe that's a time for that. But for, you know, maybe the, the pink haired, you know, screaming from the rooftops, transgender activist, maybe they need to hear that they're an abomination before the Lord. The word is there for a reason, right? Because all three are true. You've missed the mark. You're lawless. You're an abomination. But they're useful maybe at different times. And we need to know when, and we also need to not be afraid um, to speak in the same manner that the Holy Spirit inspired them to be written. He inspired it to be written as lawless and an abomination for a reason. It will humble you more to know what sin is, what, you know, sin is, all sin is going to send you to hell, but not all sins are equal in, you know, because right. you'll be punished based on the kind of sin that you committed in your life. Yeah. And again, that's the seriousness of sin would lend to a seriousness of term to be used maybe, you know. Um, so yeah, if someone's committing very serious sins, um, murder or something to that effect, child rape or whatever, you don't want to tell them they're missing the mark. You know, that yeah. might not be a strong enough term. And Jones kind of makes this point in here. He says um, that the vivid description of sinners reveals an important biblical point that we sometimes overlook in our thinking, namely that we are more than mere sinners. And then he's, uh, he says, he quotes John 19, or he points to John 19, 11, I'm making the, the point in that verse that all sins are bad. But not all, but not all sins are equally bad. Yeah. All sins are sins, but not all sins are the same sin. You know, and I think John points to uh or points out that there are some sins that um basically are unforgivable, right? Um is that in first John? He talks about that. Unforgivable sin rejecting. No, he talks about uh, I can't think of the verse right now, but I think John points just to that fact that. There are sins that you can't come back from. Oh, um, yeah. So not all sins are equal. So, Like the Hebrews 6? Well, Hebrews 6, I think, is... That's not... I mean, that does talk about people who have turned away from God or they can no longer be saved. But 
I think John specifically points out and mentions that there are sins that I'm getting the wording wrong, but sins that you can't come back from. So it may be talking about the same idea, just worded differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, language is important. And, you know, the Bible and its language is colorful, it's vivid, and we shouldn't soft sell or soften what the Holy Spirit has emphasized. You know, he's God, right? We're his vessels, we're his slaves, his servants. So he gave us the word. We just need to share it. You know, this goes back to that mindset of the progressive Christian. You know, we're going to be nicer than God. Eh, he right. said it's an abomination, but that's hurtful. But that No, he said it for a reason. But God does correct through other believers. You know, we iron sharpens iron. You know, you can bring a, a brother back um, into the fold, you know, correcting them. You save them from hell. Um, so we need to be honest with their sin, like you said, just what they're doing and warn them of, of hell. It's like, you've, you're walking away. If you don't come back, you, you're going to be judged. Yeah. And uh, I just pulled it up here. I just want to get it out there. It's first John chapter five, I think verse maybe 16 and 17. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. So we don't know what that sin is, but again, there is sins that lead to death. And he tells you don't even pray for that. So, uh, but you want to be very clear about what the, you know, the seriousness of the sin, I think is a good way to look at that. Don't say you're missing the mark if someone's committing a sin that leads to death. <laughs> you know, maybe tell them they're transgressing, um, and they're living in ungodliness or something. I don't know, but um, vocabulary is important. You know, speaking properly, speaking directly, not soft selling. Um, but again, there's also times where you don't want to be overly critical. You don't want to be overly harsh with somebody. Maybe you have a child. You don't need to tell them they're a lawless abomination before the Lord, right? Maybe you can tell them, you know, you're sinning, you're, you know, it's like committing a crime against, you know, you can soft, you know, soften the blow a little bit there with a kid. So it goes both ways, I think. You know, there's times when it's appropriate and maybe there's times when you walk it back a little bit, yes. um, depending on the audience. But you, you need to be truthful with people and don't think you got to be nicer than God, I think is... uh a good way to look at that. He gave us the words, so we use the words. So do you have any last thoughts on the Bible topic, the news stories, anything before we end with our sermon recommendation that we've already sort of mentioned? Nope. All right. So our sermon recommendation, as we mentioned earlier, is going to be our discussion that we had on um, Andrew Rappaport's theology throwdown here. And it was his latest episode. If you just go to christianpodcastcommunity.org, uh, I'll have links in the show notes as well, but it's his first episode here, the Asbury Revival. And there was about seven or eight of us on there all discussing it. And, you know, you guys may not agree with our conclusions for all of us on how we viewed the Asbury Revival, but when did disagreement become a bad thing? right? Um, how do you sharpen each other if you never disagree on anything? So go give that a listen. 
Let us know what you think about it. As always, we'd love to hear from you in the comments. We'd love to hear from you on social media. Um, and if you got time, drop us a like, subscribe, follow, and maybe even leave us a nice review. We'd certainly appreciate that. But we will be back on Monday with our daily devotionals. And the next week, you never know what the world's going to throw at us. We will certainly try to get to Knowing Sin Chapter 5, but who knows? Uh, until next time, though, we do hope you guys have a good week. God bless. Whether you want a laid-back trail to hit with friends or you're planning something more adventurous, All Trails Plus is your guide to making the most of your time outdoors. Get outside today with three free months of All Trails Plus with code PODCAST23 at alltrails.com slash podcast.